This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Love Beats. Love Beats offers ready-to-eat beet products perfect for beet lovers and beet newbies alike. Their plain-cooked beets are a great fridge staple, and their marinated baby beets come in a bunch of fun flavors like Sweet Chill, which is really tasty, and White Wine Balsamic. They also offer beet juice and beet powder, which is a great pre-workout. Get some carbs in there. Get some magnesium as well. It's nice. You can find their products at most major retailers nationwide, like Kroger, Whole Foods, Costco, and more. Check out lovebeats.com and use code MANLINESS at checkout for 20% off online orders. Again, lovebeats.com, code manliness at checkout for 20% off online orders. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. If you've ever been at an event where there's a prominent person like a politician, celebrity, or a business executive, you've likely noticed the dudes wearing sunglasses and sporting an earpiece, trying to look as unassuming as possible while vigilantly keeping an eye out for their client or what's also called a principal. These guys are part of a personal security detail, and their job is to protect VIPs from harassment and harm. Most of us will likely never be able to afford our own bodyguard, but that doesn't mean we can't use the same mindset and skills these professionals use to protect their high-powered clients, to protect ourselves and our loved ones. Today on the show, I talked to a former executive bodyguard, his name's Nick Hughes, about his book, How to Be Your Own Bodyguard. We begin our conversation discussing Nick's stint in the French Foreign Legion and how that transitioned to his work in executive protection. We then discuss how a bodyguard's primary focus is to prevent violence or altercations from occurring in the first place and the tactics that can accomplish that goal. Nick walks us through how criminals pick their victims and how to avoid being targeted. We then discuss how to verbally diffuse a situation situation before it turns to blows and the legal ramifications of self-defense. We end our conversations with tactics you can use to stay safe, whether you're vacationing abroad or driving the streets of your hometown. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash bodyguard. Nick joins me now via clearcast.io. All right, Nick Hughes, welcome to the show. Thanks, mate. Great to be here. So you wrote a book, How to Be Your Own Bodyguard. Before we get to the, the content of the book and how we can do, do a better job of defending ourselves and our families, let's talk about your background because it's really interesting. You served in the French Foreign Legion, and this is a military organization that I think a lot of people have heard of. They probably, I mean, I've seen in like just referenced in pop culture. I think there was a Pepe Le Pew cartoon where he joins the French Foreign Legion, <laughs> but like a lot of people don't know a lot about it. So what is the French Foreign Legion? Well, in a nutshell, it was set up in 1831 by King Louis Philippe in France. And the French, like a lot of other countries, you know, the English, the Dutch, the Portuguese were all running around the world, setting up their empires. And the French were all through Africa. And war was wiping out the troops, and so was malaria, which they didn't know what the cause was at that point, but it was decimating their garrisons. And the king went, you know, we need more soldiers, and they're like, we can't get them. And he said, what if we use foreigners? And his advisors said, you know, why the hell would a foreigner want to come and fight for France? And he said, well, we'll set up a legion of them, and we will give them a fresh start. So they can be wanted for murder. They can be wanted for any sort of crime on the run for anyone, want a second chance at life. We'll give them a fake name. And if they serve for five years with us, they get the right to French citizenship. And that wasn't promising a lot in those days because most guys didn't make it through the five years. And that's essentially how it started. And it's been around ever since. And are those rules still in, I mean, that's a myth around it that you can like have any type of background and you can join. Is that still in place? Yeah, that changed. You know, warfare changed. You now need guys who are a hell of a lot more smarter than, you know, fix a bayonet and run at a machine gun nest. 
and they got the opportunity to pick and choose. They no longer take murderers. If you're guilty of any sort of felony, basically, anywhere in the world, the Legion works hand in glove with Interpol and the French gendarmes. And we'd have guys try and join, and they you know, usually tell them, look, you can turn yourself in, and that's going to go better for you, or we can turn you in. But they'll still take, the, the French government still works on that basis that they used to do here and in England, where, you know, you get convicted of something, you know, shoplifting, steal a purse, steal a car, and the judge would offer you, look, you can go join the military or you can go to prison. And of course, a lot of guys would opt for the military, and the French still do that. But capital crimes, yeah, you can't get in. Uh, that is one of the myths. But it's still a legion that's just for foreigners, correct? Yeah, they say that. And legally, a French kid is not allowed to join. But the legion's made up of about, when I was in there, about 40% of them are French. And the way they get around that is they give that kid a ID card saying he's from Belgium or he's from Switzerland or he's Canadian. And that way, if he's stopped on the train by a guard and he starts talking perfectly fluent French, that explains why. So, I mean, what drew you to joining the French Foreign Legion? Like, how old were you when that happened? Uh, 24. I was with a karate organization in Australia that their whole focus was on security and self-defense and the practical side of martial arts as opposed to tournaments. And so we had schools across the country. We did all the crowd control work, had pretty much every single nightclub in every major city in the country. Our guys were the bouncers. We did bodyguard work for every visiting rock and roll band, and some of those guys are still working with those bands to this day. And I got into that side of it and loved it, but I wanted to go to the next level, which was diplomatic protection. And we don't have any, didn't have any in Australia at that time. Even the Prime Minister of Australia had an old retired cop walking around with a wheel gun was his whole security because we'd never had any terrorism or anything. And everyone told me who was in the industry, you know, you're going to have to go to America or Europe because that's where the market is. And I landed in England because my grandparents are English. So it was easier to get into there than the States. I went around a couple of agencies that furnished these bodyguards for people and found out that they only hired people who were ex-special forces, which makes sense when you think about it. And I arrived, you know, black belt in hand, thinking I was ready to go. And they laughed and said, come back once you've been through the military. At that point in time in England, they had, this was what, 84, so massive unemployment all through Europe. And to get into the British Army, it was about a one and a half year waiting list to even apply, and then another one and a half before his training started. But I bumped into this Irish guy on one of the bodyguard teams, and he said, mate, I was in the Legion. And he said, if they take you, they'll take you straight away. And uh, popped across, rolled up in the fort in Marseille, and uh, was in three days later. Wow. And what did you do during your your tenure there? Uh, I well, wanted to be a paratrooper and a medic. I figured those would be the two best things for my future career. And I ended up in the parachute regiment despite being way too big for French parachutes. I was too heavy. I was over the safe weight limit by about 20 kilos. And I could only just fit inside the harnesses at six foot eight. I'd be the last one out of the door of the plane. I was still the first guy to hit the ground. So I started breaking my feet. And at that point, they said, this isn't worth it. And I volunteered to go out to Africa. When I was in the parachute regiment, I was in their equivalent of the Navy SEALs. We did all the re we were recon divers. And when I went to Africa, I got stuck in the same role. I was supposed to go to my medic training out there and ended up getting shoved onto a signals course instead because they were a man short. And finished the contract, well, five years later and rolled out. And I had a job ready to go. I'd 
when I was on leave, I'd done a bodyguard training course with a group in England run by some ex-SAS guys. And they told me, when you get done, give us a call. And we were riding back and forth uh, as the end of contract approached. And I had a job waiting pretty much two days after I got out of the camp. I was working on a gig in London. And so before the, the French Foreign Legion, you said you were doing bodyguard stuff for uh, you know, rock bands and things like that. And you wanted to get in the diplomatic sphere. Mm-hmm. Did that happen after you, you finished your contract with the French Foreign Legion? Yes. Yeah. Those guys in England, it's a whole different ball game, you know, and you have, there's two aspects of bodyguarding. You know, you've got the guys that work executive protection, diplomatic protection. So they're looking after politicians and businessmen. And then you have these guys that look after celebrities and they're almost two completely separate industries. I was one of the rare few that could cross over. So I looked after a bunch of rock and roll bands both in London and over here in the States. And I could also go and work with the executives and the corporate and the VIPs. I did a lot of work for the Saudi royal family. And I'd look after a band like Warrant a month later. Then I was in Russia looking after Peter Max, the artist. So I could sort of flip back and forth. And I think that was largely because I'd done the rock and roll stuff in Australia. So I knew what was required. And then I got trained up in the VIP executive protection stuff by the SAS guys, so I could slot into that role too. And are you still doing bodyguard work? Uh, mate, no, I'm too old. I was born at a very early age, and uh, I got out of that industry a long time ago. Well, yeah, I imagine it's a young man's game. It is, and the the other problem with it is, and you know, I didn't find it's one of those things. I'm sure a lot of us do this. You have this idea in mind of what it's going to be like to do a certain job. And then when you get into the job, you find out what you imagine to, to be in reality are two different things. And the problem I had with that is you don't know where the money's coming from. You also have no life of your own. You know, when I was in the Legion, I knew every month I would get X amount of money and I knew where I was going to be every week and where I, you know, when I'd be back from a mission and when I'd go on a training course and how long I had in this particular regiment. And with bodyguarding, you're sitting around waiting for the phone to ring. You get a job. It ends. You've been paid. But now I have to figure out, is this money going to last me for a day because I get another job tomorrow? Or is this going to last me for a year? And I'm going to have to get some sort of side hustle. And then they don't tell you when the gig's going to finish. And so the money's hit and miss. And what I meant by you have no life of your own. You know, if I want to go and eat pizza and sit on the beach and the boss wants to go skiing and eat Chinese, guess what we're doing? And I you know, came to that conclusion five or six years later of working on it. That it just wasn't as much fun as I thought it was going to be. So you, you, you transitioned to training people on self-defense. Yeah, that was, I actually started tattooing people first. <laughs> okay. I had met a tattoo artist when I was looking after Warrant. And he came out on the road and would tattoo all the band members. And I do art. I've done it my whole life. I've actually sold watercolor paintings. And He looked at my sketchbook and said, man, you ever want to learn how to tattoo? I'll teach you. And I sort of stuck that in the back of my head. Well, when am I going to do that? And when I got out of bodyguarding, I thought, well, hell, I'll go back to the Legion because, you know, I enjoyed it. You're being paid to live and work in the south of France and Africa, and you're being paid, you know, to jump out of planes, shoot and scuba dive and all that stuff that people pay a fortune to do in Civvy Street. And I thought, man, if I could learn to tattoo and do that while I was in the Legion, I'd have my equipment under the bed. And then after hours work on guys, I, there would be my side hustle. So I called him up and he said, yeah, get your butt over here. And I uh, ended up in the States 
plan was to work with him for three months, learn the ropes and go back in the Legion. And then I met my now ex-wife and that changed the whole thing. Sure. So let's get to your book, How to Be Your Own Bodyguard, because this is basically your, you've taken your insights you've learned from firsthand experience yep. from the French Foreign Legion and doing bodyguard for VIPs and how just regular citizens, civilians can apply this to their own lives. And I thought what was great about your book is that you spend a lot of time talking about self-defense before the altercation occurs. Because I think a lot of people, when they talk and think about, I got to learn how to defend myself, they think about the actual moment of physical altercation, right? The punch, you know, when someone draws a weapon. But you highlight in the book, you know, as a bodyguard, your job is to even just prevent that from happening in the first place. Yeah, you're absolutely right. When I went through bodyguard training and we're doing so much of the focus, you know, I'm, I'm assuming, again, this is that image we have, right? I'm going to learn how to shoot guns. I'm going to run cars through roadblocks, jump out of helicopters, do all this crap. And you're in there and you're learning pretty much the entire job is about avoidance, so I'm going to take a client down, you know, someone from an American company is going to open up a factory in South America and they've got to go down there and do the ribbon cutting. Well, the risk there is he's going to get kidnapped. And of course, it's announced in the local newspapers that he's going to be visiting. So we have to have an advanced team goes down and you do a threat analysis and you try and work out who the bad actors are down there. And it's all about preventing any sort of conflict whatsoever. And I'm comparing that to all the self-defense. And I'd trained, you know, living and worked in 26 different countries around the world. And everywhere I went, I would find the local martial arts school and train. So I've trained in, you know, judo, jujitsu, aikido, karate, 50 different styles. Everywhere I'd lob up, I'd train with them. And it's always the same thing. You know, you start with the attack. And I was sitting there on the bodyguard course, one of them. I've done three. I'm sitting on the course one day going, why is no one teaching this to civilians, you know, why are they all learning, oh, the guy's got you in a headlock or he's strangling or he's coming at you with a knife when so much of it starts way before that? And I started to sort of analyze it all. And I thought, why not give this knowledge to the people that need it? You know, most the average person goes on vacation and they're going to be targeted. They can't afford a bodyguard team. I mean, we're expensive. So I decided to put that information in for him. And it comes in, if you've read the book, you've read the bit about SIVA, which was the acronym I came up for. And all crime essentially starts with S stands for selection of the victim, and then they isolate the victim. Then they use some sort of verbal patter to approach close enough to launch their attack. So if you break it down that way, 75% of self-defense is select, you know, learning how not to be selected, being careful when you're isolated or alone, how to deal with that verbal altercation. And only 25% is the actual, what we call hard skills or fighting your way out of something. And I figured if you do that, just like in bodyguarding, if you do the 75% correctly, the chances of you needing the hard skills are almost non-existent. So that's what the book's about. Well, let's walk through that, that SIVA acronym. So selection. Mm -hmm. So what can people do to increase the chances that they're not selected as a victim of a crime? Okay. The first thing I would recommend is you read a study by a couple called Grayson and Stein. That was fascinating. They filmed 100 people walking down the street. They took the film and they went into people who prey on other humans. They went into the prison system. And so they interviewed murderers and rapists and muggers. And, you know, they arranged time off their sentence if they took part in the study. And they showed the film of these people walking and they had a little clipboard and under each person is a number. And they're like, tell us who you would pick as victims. And they were stunned when they got the sheets back from, you know, a couple of hundred of these guys, and they had all picked the same people. 
And, you know, initially you're thinking, okay, I bet they're all tiny and they weren't, or I bet they're all women and they weren't. Some of these guys they chose were big guys. Some were women. It had nothing to do with color. It had nothing to do with size. It had nothing to do with religion. It was purely based on how you carried yourself. And that dovetails with something that's close to my heart, which is bullying. And I have a teen class at my Krav Maga school because I was actually bullied when I went to school. And one of the things I know with the you know anti-bully movement here that's largely ineffective is these parents get angry that the school isn't doing enough and they take the kid out of the school and put him into another one. And what do we know happens, right? Two months later, that kid's being bullied again. And you can put him in six different schools and he's just going to get bullied every single time he goes somewhere new and shows up because of this study that he's carrying himself the same way, which is a trigger to the bullies. And further to that, there's a more recent study now out of England where someone said, well, does bullying stop when you leave school? And so they tracked all these kids that had been bullied at school and found out that they were victims of bullying in the workplace, cyberbullying. They were more likely to be mugged. They were more likely to have their houses broken into and so on. So number one is the way you carry yourself. And, you know, there's a bunch of stuff in the study that will, you know, if you read it online, goes into the details of the things they found. But basically, these people don't walk at the same pace as other people, and they don't have the same gait that other people have. So that's one part of it. Another part is fairly obvious, trying to be the gray man, which is a term that comes from, you know, the spook industry, or you want to be the guy that sort of doesn't stand out, doesn't draw attention to himself, flits into somewhere, he's at the party for a couple of hours, meeting everyone, getting information, he leaves, and no one ever remembers what he looked like or who he was. And then there are some more obvious ones, like, you know, leave the valuable jewelry at home. Don't go rolling into, you know, some third world, very, very poor country with gold Rolexes on and great big cameras hanging around your neck because you're setting yourself up. You're advertising basically, hey, you know, take me. Another thing is pay attention to your surroundings. And that's probably one of the biggest. Criminals are looking for opportunity and we call it task fixation. If you're sitting there staring at the ATM screen, staring at the gas nozzle that you've got in the car while you're pumping gas, if you're looking down at your phone, it makes it very easy for the bad guy to approach and take your stuff. So one of the biggest things is just pay attention to your surroundings at all times. And I imagine this selection, you can apply this selection idea to your house as well to prevent burglaries and home invasions. Like you want to, you want to present your house in a way that it's not like, it's not robbable or it doesn't look desirable to rob or whatever. Yeah. All, all crime fits that parameter. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's an attack on a person. We teach it that way because, you know, the students that come to me are primarily interested in self-defense of themselves. But yeah, every single crime, whether it's a carjacking or a burglary, you know, the guy, it starts with choosing what sort of a car do I want to jack or what, what house am I going to break into? And one of the ways they'll go for your house, for example, is, and this is one of the ones we talk in isolation in SIBA. If you go to a big box store to buy your, you know, 60 inch TV, pay particular attention when you're driving home that you're not being followed because this is how these guys go shopping. So they'll sit at the big store, they watch you come out with the TV, put it in, they follow you home. And now they know you've got a brand new TV inside the house and that's obviously going to make you a target. And there's parts of, parts of the country where that's massively prevalent that they'll even hit you in the driveway when you get to the house. They don't even wait to break in. They just walk right up on the driveway, pull guns and take the stuff and drive away. 
Jeez. Well, I mean, related to that, one thing I've heard, tip I've heard is that Christmas time, be careful of putting boxes out on your driveway yep. because you just, you're basically advertising, oh, I got this thing and this mm-hmm. thing and this thing and uh, yeah, don't I, do I, that. Yeah. Cut the boxes up, get a, a box cutter, cut them up into small pieces, stick it inside black trash bags. Don't stick the big box. That's absolutely correct. All right. Let's move on to isolation. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's just, that's just a matter of don't, don't become isolated because that's dangerous. Well, I mean, it comes down to the old saying, right? There's safety in numbers. So I tell my female students, if you're going to go shopping, right, call up one of your girlfriends and go with her. It's a lot harder as a predator to control two people than it is to control one. And, you know, controlling three becomes even more problematic. And that's, you know, that's taken straight out of scuba diving, the old buddy rule. The other thing is practice a lot of what we call counter surveillance and situational awareness when you're in that situation, because it's when most people tune out. So, a lot of crime happens on the periphery of tourist events. So if you've got a fireworks display downtown, for example, criminals will go there because it's like the watering hole on the African plains, right? Predatory animals go to the watering hole to get dinner because all the animals are going to be at the watering hole. So criminals who are going to target you will go to where there's a crowd event like that. And they love it when your attention is distracted. So you're sitting there looking at the fireworks and all that stuff. So they'll pick you out. Now you leave to walk. And this is where all the crimes happen. You cut through the alley to the parking lot to go where you parked your car. And this is when most people switch off. You know, the fireworks display is over, the nightclub shut down. And now they're walking along, checking the messages on their phone again. And they're oblivious to the fact that the guy comes up and gets them. And that's telling because I work with a lot of law enforcement officers and I've trained some of the local SWAT teams on executive protection. And one of the things we're always talking about is how many victims of crime will say, oh, the guy came out of nowhere. And, you know, Merlin the magician isn't running around mugging people. It appeared as if he came out of nowhere because you had your head up your ass and the guy was able to approach you because of this task fixation problem. And had you been paying attention, had you had your head up and been looking around, he wouldn't have been able to do it and he would have picked someone else. So, but sometimes, yeah, sometimes uh, criminals, they will just like maybe pickpocket, steal from you without even talking to you. But that, that SIVA part, there is often a verbal interview that occurs. What, what's, what is the criminal trying to do with that verbal interview? Well, let me go back to the pickpocket thing. It's actually funny. Pickpockets will use verbal. A lot of times they won't, right? The actual pickpocket, will, what they call a dip, will come up and bump you and take your stuff. But there have been many instances where, and this is a classic, right? The guy will be on the subway and he'll yell out to the entire carriage, hey, everybody, check your stuff. I've just noticed I've had my wallet picked. And of course, everyone on the train now pats their pocket to make sure their wallet's there. Well, that guy's part of a team and they're all watching everybody on the train to see where they pat. So if I watch you pat your back pocket and, you know, your wife lifts her handbag and looks inside and someone else pats his jacket pocket, now we know where the wallets are. So we don't have to waste time. We can just go right up against you. And when the train stops at the next carriage and everyone's getting out and those guys are that good, they don't care that they forewarned you. And I mentioned in the book, there's a sign In India, across the alleyway between all the American hotels, and it's written in about 50 different languages that said, watch out for pickpockets. And it was the pickpockets who put the sign up. Because again, you do that same thing. You see the sign and you go, oh my God, and you pat wherever your wallet happens to be. And uh, all you've done is told them where it is. So you just make their job easier. But back to the verbal, yeah, it's used as a distraction technique. And I was talking to some of the local cops that were doing undercover work about mm, eight years ago. We had a spate of muggings downtown when people were leaving the nightclubs. 
And so these cops would put some money hanging out of their pocket, pretend they were drunk, stick a gold Rolex on and stumble down the road. And they had, you know, had earpieces in and microphones waiting to catch these guys. But when they talked to the victims, they found out that a lot of these guys were still using the classic, have you got the time? And of course, if you ask me that, I've either got to look down at my watch, or if you're a member of the Snapchat generation, you pull your phone out and look at the screen of the phone. And again, you're taking your attention away from them and looking at something else, which gives them the opportunity to launch. And besides that, as a distraction, often, sometimes you talk about in the book, sometimes they'll just yell or just try to intimidate you, basically. Mm-hmm. It's called fronting, yep. So some, and, and that's, you know, no different again. There's so many comparisons to wild animals. When a wild animal's about to attack, it does that big screaming roar and it causes that momentary flinch in its prey and it enables the animal to get close enough. And you'll get this thing where the guys will start screaming and yelling at you in your face. And again, it's an intimidation thing. No one likes being yelled at and they'll scream so violently and stick their chin in your face that, you know, the average person who's not experienced with non-consensual violence freezes and then gets done. And then there's a whole aspect of verbal, which comes under the heading of social violence. And this is what Rory Miller calls the monkey dance. And that's where, you know, we've all done this. If a guy goes to a new school, he goes into a military unit, he goes to prison, he goes to anywhere where there's a group of guys, a new neighborhood, his parents move. He's going to have to go through this. Who are the new kids? And he's going to be the interloper trying to join that group. And someone's going to challenge him. There has to be a fight between two of the kids to establish his position in the hierarchy. And the thing with social violence is there are rules attached to it. Like, you know, no one's going to get seriously hurt. They'll break it up before that happens. And you might come home with a black eye and the other kid's got a fat lip. But both sides have sort of, you've st- even if you lose, it doesn't matter. You stepped up to the plate and showed that you're willing to defend yourself. And that's okay. Now the group accepts you. So there's a lot of that when you walk into a bar, like you're driving across the country and you stop to get directions or grab a drink and you're the interloper in that group. A lot of times you'll run into these clowns that, you know, will bump you at the bar and like, what are you looking at? You're looking at my girlfriend. I saw you take my money off the pool table. You knocked my beer over. You owe me a beer. And so a lot of this starts with that, you know, verbal intimidation again. And we cover how to deal with that. Because if I can say something in that situation to make it worse, which is pretty easy, I can obviously say something that will make it better. And so we steal from the playbook of the hostage negotiations guys in trying to use some de-escalation. But there is a caveat in that. There are people who teach only that. And the reality is there are some guys, they're not talking. They're just going to walk up and belt you. You know, we've got clip after clip of people, you know, usually... Usually mental patients off their meds, but, you know, they'll just be walking down the street and they'll just start randomly stabbing people, for example. Well, you can work on all the verbal dissuasion techniques you like. That's not going to do you any good in that situation. Right. And we can talk about some of those verbal diffusion techniques here in a bit, but like the last part of this sequence is attack. And that can happen in a variety of ways. A shove, a punch, weapons, yep. could be anything. Yeah, there's a whole gamut. I mean, it's it's literally like we said, it can be social, it can be asocial, there can be weapons involved. Weapons can be broken down into categories of impact, edged, projectile, chemical. There can be a mob attack, it can be a mob armed with weapons. I mean, that's worst case scenario. So yeah, there's a whole, that's, that's why, you know, there are people who, you know, verbal judo books and stuff that sort of come from the premise of, oh, I can talk my way out of anything. And I run into people at parties that tell me that, and, and you can't. And then there are people who, I carry a gun, everything's going to be, you know, solved with that, and that's wrong. To be truly 
you know, effective at this. You have to have the whole range. You have whole, yeah, multiple tools. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've thought we've went through how a criminal thinks when he's going through deciding on which victim to select. Let's talk more about your experience as a bodyguard. When you say you walk into a place, or even before you go to a place, like you said earlier, you do a whole bunch of reconnaissance. You get an idea of the type of people that are going to be there, where the entrance and exits are at. Obviously, someone who's just defending themselves, their family, they can't oftentimes have the time to do all of that. So what's something that people could do similar to what a bodyguard would do? Let's say they're walking into a restaurant or a bar and they want to get a lay of the land. So they have an idea, have a plan on what to do to protect themselves or the people they're with. Uh, Well, the first thing I always start with before I do anything physical is I'm trying to establish what we call a baseline. So if I'm in a library, right, the baseline is everyone's very quiet. If I go to a rock concert, the baseline is everyone's very loud and they're holding up, you know, in my day it was cigarette lighters. Nowadays, I think they hold up the flashlight on their phone. If I go to a restaurant, you know, depending on the restaurant, there's going to be another baseline. If I'm at the beach, there's another baseline. And what we're looking for is any anomaly in the baseline. So if we go back to the Aurora uh, cinema shooting in uh, Colorado, where that guy dresses as the Joker, props the back door open. So that, if the theater baseline is we all walk in, people are sitting there eating their popcorn, watching the ads, talking, texting last minute before the movie starts. If I had been sitting in that movie theater and I see the back door propped open and I see a guy dressed as the Joker coming in and out of the door, bringing in, you know, equipment that's not fitting in the baseline. So that would have prompted me to get up and go outside and ask management, you know, is there some sort of a show going on with the movie? Is this normal? So never ignore that baseline. If you see anything out of the ordinary, you know, I was in a, in my tattoo shop, when I first got to the States, so this was about 95, and in the middle of summer, two guys walk in wearing full-length trench coats and sweating profusely, you know, and it's 99 degrees outside. And so what's the baseline? What's everybody wearing? They're all in shorts and wife beaters, and here come these two guys rocking in in, in coats. And immediately that sets off the alarm bells. And we turned around. Fortunately, I was showing a friend a new pistol I just bought. So we turned around and looked at these guys and they're like, oh, oh, and they bolted. Two days later, we found out another tattoo shop got robbed by two guys in long trench coats. So first thing I'm doing is establishing that baseline. The next thing I want to do is where are the exits? And I mentioned in the book, we used to play a game. All the bodyguards would sit down after a gig was over in England and someone coming back from the bathroom would grab you, cover your eyes from behind and go, where are the exits? And if you couldn't point to them all with your eyes closed, you had to buy dinner. So being aware of where they are is a big deal. And then the next thing I'm always doing is sitting down and any girl that's ever dated a cop or an ex-military guys run into this. We sit with our back to the wall so we can see who's coming in and out of the restaurant. And again, any advance warning you can get. And so back to that tattoo shop thing, you know, if I see two guys walking in like that and their mannerisms aren't fitting the baseline, that immediately starts to get my spidey sense tingling and you're starting to watch, you know, something's going down. The more advanced warning you can get of that, the better your chances are of survival. Right. And it typically, yeah, I've been doing, doing all those things since I've been talking to self-defense guys. Mm-hmm. I do all those things. I walk into a place, yep. establishing baseline, looking for anomalies. Uh, I try to look for where all the exits are at. And I always sit them with my back to the wall. And here's the thing. It doesn't like people think, oh, if you got to be super paranoid about this, like you don't, it literally, it becomes a habit and you don't really think about it. 
Yes. Yeah, it's not paranoia at all. Paranoia is an actual mental condition, and someone who's paranoid will be at home hiding under their bed. All right, they're afraid of everything. They're afraid they're going to get attacked everywhere. And, you know, they're walking around in this constant state where they're freaking out because they think everything evil in the world is going to befall them. Preparedness, which is what this is, is a wholly different thing. It's got nothing to do with paranoia. It's got nothing to do with fear. It's being prepared. You know, I don't put my seatbelt on when I drive the car because I'm afraid I'm going to have an accident. I put it on because I'm preparing myself in the event that one happened, right? I've done something to alleviate it. I'm not afraid. Otherwise, I wouldn't get in the car and drive in the first place. And here's another thing. I've had critics say, well, who wants to live their life like that? And I'm like, like what? How long does it take you to put a seatbelt on? You know, a second, how long does it take you to sit with your back to a wall facing the door versus sitting with your back to the door? How long does it take to go into a bathroom and go into the cubicle or the cabinet rather than standing out in the open? All of these things take about two seconds longer. So there's really no inconvenience. And as you said, after a while, it becomes your operating norm and you just do these things. And again, the nice thing about it is the bad guys recognize the behavior and they leave you alone. They're looking for the victim again, who's not paying attention, who's not doing those things. No, I imagine in addition to doing all these things, a, a bodyguard is also developing plans, like multiple plans at the same time, uh, based on what if scenarios. Yeah, I, I'm going to contradict myself here. We we call ourselves professional paranoics because we walk around all day, you know, what if, what if, what if, what if, if you're doing the job correctly. So I'm driving in the car with the client and I'm sitting there, you know, what if this truck in front of us stopped and two guys got out with rifles and ran at the car? And then when I pull up at the club we're going into, I'm like, what if we get out here and three guys run out of the crowd and try and stab him? And then we go into the hotel room. What if there's someone waiting inside the room? So you're playing these drills all the time in your head. And the nice thing about those, you know, the Russians claimed they came up with this thing called imagery rehearsal, which every sports psychologist and every, you know, tier one athlete around the world uses now what we call imagery rehearsal. And they've done studies on this with basketball teams where one team does the physical act of shooting, one team imagines shooting, and one team does a mixture of the both. And the team that does the mixture of both, right, outperforms everybody else. And so every single professional athlete, you know, Gary Player used to talk about this in golf, and uh, they sit there and they visualize the shot before they take it. And it's massively beneficial. Um, I was pointing out to someone the other day, this is what forms are in Japanese martial arts, by the way. It's the same stuff. So it goes way back before the Russians in the 60s and goes back to the 15th and 16th century. I am running through like someone who dry fires a pistol or a boxer who shadow boxes. I'm running through in my imagination, right, what will be happening. Now, what we know is the subconscious can't differentiate between what's real and what's imagined. So as far as my subconscious mind is concerned, I'm actually in a fight if I'm doing one of those forms in martial arts. So when I'm sitting in the car with a client and I'm visualizing something that could go wrong, if it does, my subconscious has already dealt with it and I'm moving rather than the average person who's never thought about it and all of a sudden they're attacked. Now, here's the problem with that is when something happens to you, you got a little guy monitoring, you know, sitting in the front of your head basically behind a, like a security guard with a bunch of camera screens. And he sees this thing going on and he jumps up and runs back to the filing cabinet and goes, Shows me, show me everything we've got on someone coming at me with a gun. Well, the average person's never thought about that and it's never happened. So they got nothing. So they basically freeze. 
And that what that's what causes that reaction where people freeze and or go into shock. With someone who's trained for that, they go back and pull the file out like, oh, yeah, this is, you know, I remember this. We did this in so-and-so, and now it does the relevant response. And so we're capitalizing on a principle in psychology, which is called recency. If whatever you've been thinking about last is going to come to hand first, all right? So it's kind of like having files on your desk again. If the last file I looked at is on top, it's easier to find than the one that's buried under the pile. So I spend my day when I'm working with a client driving around wondering, what if this happens? What if this happens? So you're mentally prepared. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Indochino makes suits and shirts to your exact measurements for an unparalleled fit and comfort. Guys love the wide selection of high-quality fabrics and colors, not to mention the option to personalize the details, including your lapel, lining, pockets, and buttons. The process is easy. You go online, you get to pick your suit. I did this with my navy blue suit that I've been talking about for a while now. Got to decide how I wanted the pockets to look, the lapels, whether I wanted pleats or no pleats. Then you measure yourself with this guide, or you can go to one of their showrooms and have the measurements done for you. You send it all in online, and in a few weeks, you've got a custom made-to-measure suit sent directly to your door. It's summertime. They've got a selection of summertime suits made from linen. So go check that out. If you'd like to get any premium Indochino suit for just $359, you can do so by going to Indochino.com, enter code manliness at checkout. That's 50% off the regular price for a made-to-measure premium suit. Plus shipping is free. So to get that offer, it's Indochino.com, promo code manliness for any premium suit for just $359 and free shipping. It's about the price you're going to pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. But this one is custom and made to measure just for you. Check this out. You're going to love it. Indochino.com, code manliness. Also by The Great Courses Plus. There's a sense of pride that comes with being able to speak confidently and intelligently about a subject or just being the only one at a trivia night with the answer. That's why I love The Great Courses Plus. This is a streaming service that lets you learn about virtually any topic from top engaging experts in their fields. There's unlimited access to thousands of lectures on topics like money management, effective communication skills, even the essentials of strength training or how a diet affects stress. And with The Great Courses Plus app, you have the flexibility to watch or listen just about anywhere. And if you're looking for a course to check out, one I'd recommend is from a professor I had at the University of Oklahoma. His name was Dr. J. Rufus Fears, and the course is called Famous Greeks. You're going to start with the Iliad, the epic poems of Homer, and learn how those stories influence the rest of Greek culture and history. Then you're going to get into the founders like Lycurgus and Solon. You're going to learn about Xerxes and the Persian Empire. Then you're going to learn about the, the great wars that happened, the Peloponnesian War. And you go all the way to Alexander the Great. It's such an engaging, engaging lecture series. So go check it out. It's Famous Greeks on the Great Courses Plus. And I've got an offer for you. If you want to try a month of free Great Courses Plus. Just go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash manliness and you get a free month of unlimited access to all the courses there. So go check it out, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash manliness. And when you do sign up, check out Famous Greeks by Dr. J. Rufus Fears. And now back to the show. And this all ties in with, you had this, you discussed this in the book, you had a whole chapter dedicated to the OODA loop, the observe, orient, decide, act. Mm-hmm. That whole what is scenario, it sounds like you're basically orienting yourself. You're giving yourself mental models to work with. So whenever something does happen, you can make a decision and act quickly instead of having to develop the plan on the fly while it's happening and then try to act. Yes, exactly. It's preconditioned responses. And that's going to make you a hell of a lot faster than someone who's trying to guess or make it up as they go along. And, you know, if you go into the military and you're looking at any SF unit that's worth their salt, during their basic training, they're doing what's called immediate contact drills or contact response drills, depending on which military you're in. But, you know, you're walking along a patrol and all of a sudden another squad playing the enemy pops up and ambushes you. 
And you drill that again and again and again and again with the concept being now I'm on patrol in a village somewhere and we're ambushed. You're not sitting there like, where do we go? What do we do? Everyone knows exactly what they have to do and they respond because conscious thought, there's a really good book called Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow. And it talks about the difference between the amygdala, which is this part of our reptilian brain that is where wired for survival versus our neocortex, which is using conscious thought. And he measures in the book how much faster one is than the other. And so you just got to drill those responses until they become automated. And we found that, you know, someone talked in a book and said it's 10,000 hours. And I believe the, the author of that book has since admitted those numbers aren't necessarily true. As I've told people before, you know, you didn't ride your bicycle for 10,000 hours to get where it was automatic. And you didn't get kicked in the balls for 10,000 hours before someone goes to throw a kick at your nuts and you pull back. All right, there's some of those responses get conditioned a lot quicker. The number we've come up with is roughly three to 500 repetitions, and it'll start to get automated. Right. And I think it's an important point. I love how you point this out with the OODA loop section is that it's the person who completes their OODA loop the fastest is that is the person that wins. So say mm-hmm. there's a bad guy, he's got an OODA loop going on in his brain, even though he might not know it. He's an advantage because he knows already what his plan is. You have no clue that he's doing that. So the way you can sort of speed up your OODA loop is have those plans in place. Like think about, okay, if the guy comes in here, what's my plan? What am I going to do? If this happens, this is what I would do. You can make the, yeah. act, you can make the decision, you can act. People, of, people often forget the criminal decides when you're going to get attacked. You don't. No, that's entirely on him. So you're always playing catch up. You're at least a second and a half behind in the whole process. So, you know, he's sitting there on a street corner looking for a victim and you come walking past staring down at your phone and he goes, it's you. And only next minute taps you on the shoulder and punches you in the side of the head. He decided all of that. And you're trying to come to terms with it and process it and react to it. And if if you haven't got a preconditioned response, then, yeah, you've virtually got no chance at that point, which is why ambushes are so effective. You know, and you, you've got to have that conditioned response hardwired in. And that only comes from training. It's why, you know, one of the bank, I get calls every week. Do you do a self-defense course? And I'm like, what are you talking about? They're like, oh, we want to come in for a couple of hours and learn something. And I'm like, well, be like me going to a golf pro and getting two hours worth of lessons and, you know, putting the clubs in the cupboard in five years from now, I'm going to play Tiger Woods. It's not going to do me any good. I have to do those three to 500 hours of training and, and build that as, you know, hardwired into the system. And again, this, this what if scenario, you said, you know, you're professional paranoid, but again, it doesn't take, you don't have to be super paranoid about it. It's just a matter of just, you're sitting down and you just quickly, like, this is what I do. I was like, okay, if there's a guy that comes in, or even if there's like a fire, yep. this is, this is my plan. It's like a tentative plan. I have, I have something and it literally takes one to two seconds. Yep. And, you know, again, I, I jokingly use the term professional paranoid because we're not, you know, I'm not afraid I wouldn't be doing the job. Right. It's no. just where we're prepared constantly by thinking about that. And as you said, it becomes a habit. It's not something, you know, I'm not walking around looking over my shoulder every 15 seconds for stuff. It's actually nicer because I can relax because I'm less concerned about being attacked than someone who has no plan and is fearful for that. So we've walked through on some things already that we can do to prevent things from happening, you know, carrying ourselves, dressing away where we don't make ourselves an easy target, positioning ourselves so that we can increase the speed of our OODA loop so we can take action faster. But let's say we've done all that. 
we've taken precautions to avoid an altercation, but someone starts a verbal confrontation with us. And this is the stereotypical, the guy at the bar thing that you were talking about earlier. Walk us through some tactics that we can use to de-escalate that verbal confrontation so it doesn't go further to a physical violence. Well, we actually role play these, you know, the military over the last couple of years and so have, you know, forward thinking police departments realize the massive benefit in what we call scenario based training. So, you know, instead of reading about it or watching a film, you actually set up, you know, the police will set up a car and they'll do a vehicle stop and the guy will walk up and they'll have a cop inside and he role plays, you know, and he role plays someone who's being compliant and he role plays someone who isn't. We set those up in my crab school all the time. We'll go out in the parking lot and we'll do parking lot disputes, which, you know, massively common. And, you know, there's people actually killed over this crap every single year. You know, you're driving around for 15 minutes trying to find a space and you finally see this person walking to their car and you stop and you wait and they get in the car. And they've done studies, by the way, when they know you're waiting, they're going to make you wait longer. And they're balancing their checkbook and checking text messages. And then they start the car up and check their makeup. And they're going through this whole thing. And then as that car backs out and you're ready to go in, someone coming the other way steals the spot. And people get irate over that. Next minute, you get out of the car. Now, you haven't done anything wrong. You didn't know the guy was waiting for 15 minutes. You just pulled into a parking space. And you get out of the car and here's this person apoplectic screaming at you. You know, so we rehearse that one. We do the bar thing. You know, what the hell are you? Lo- you were looking at my girlfriend. Uh, what are you looking at? All the, you know, do you have a problem with me? All of these things. And yeah, you have to practice them. You know, the car lot dispute one, we take it a step further than everyone else. A lot of people do those and they just go straight into, I'll chop him on the neck and kick him between the legs crap. I do things like, yeah, well, let's role play this a step further. Who's in the car with you? You know, do you have your two-year-old kid in the back seat and you're not going to punch this guy that's mouthing off? Is that the message you want to see? send him? What happens if he watches you get your ass kicked? Do you have the girl in the front seat that you met last night and this is your first date? You know, how are you going to handle this situation? Are you getting out and it's one guy or has he got five mates behind him? All of this is going to be, in other words, self-defense is all context-driven. And the, the elegant solution, and this comes down to Sun Tzu, you know, the best battle is the one you don't have to fight, is you tell him, mate, I didn't know you were waiting. I'll give you the space. And we role play this and you watch people's expressions that, that you just take the air right out of them because they're preparing themselves mentally for this big, you know, F you, no F you. And you just go, dude, I didn't know you were waiting. Of course, I'll give you the space. And, and they just deflate in front of you. Again, we have this... I do a demo where I'll get a person out of the crowd at a seminar and I'll go, respond to me how you would respond to me. And I'll put my hands up like I'm shaped up to them. And they immediately respond and pick their hands up. And then I'll walk up to them and put my hand out as if I'm going to shake hands. And they put their hand out as if they're going to shake hands. And then I'll get them, they come up and I get them to do the boxing stance. And I throw my hand out as if to shake hands. And everybody shakes hands. All right. So we're trying to disarm the person. So our natural reaction is someone goes, you know, what the hell are you looking at? And you, you know, I don't know. I don't have my animal book on me. And we, and that's it, right? That's going to escalate. Or I can turn around and go, that shirt, brother, that is amazing. I've been looking for one of those for ages. My brother has been asking me to get one and I can't find him. Where did you get that from? And now I've taken him off on a tangent. You know, he's expecting the aggressive response. It's all scripted. You know, these guys are like, you were looking at my girlfriend, right? You got two chan- You got two answers. Yes, I was, or no, I wasn't. If you say, no, I wasn't, the guy's going to say, you're calling me a liar. 
and that's justification in his mind for punching you. Or you say, yes, I was, and that's justification in his mind for punching you. So again, you have to role play those things to figure out what am I going to say so that I don't get punched. And that's the key for that one. Yeah, I love that scenario you gave. The, the we're looking at my girlfriend, and you'd say you don't want to disagree with them because again, mm-hmm. you'll say you'll, you'll say I'm, you're calling me a law, or you say, well, yeah, uh, she looks like a friend of mine from high school. Is her name Susan? Yep, her name's right, Sally. Right. right, she went to so and so. Yeah, and, and we've actually had to do that a step further because one guy threw us a curveball in a seminar. We said, yeah, that's Sally, right? And he said, yes, it is. <laughs> and we're like, oh, <laughs> so we had to figure out, all right, what would we do if that happened? And then, of course, you know, throw up this weird non-existent last name. Yeah, Sally Mickelpletz. And he's like, no, nah, it's Mickelpletz, it's Smith. And you're like, oh, I thought it was Sally Mickelpletz. Man, has she got a twin? Because she looks exactly like this girl. And let me let me show you a picture. And you know, you start scrolling through your phone. And again, you're just using this stuff essentially to distract them and take them off their, you know, ABC, you've gone ABF. And it completely it's you know, you go back to the OODA loop, right? They're expecting this pre-ordained, this is how it's going to roll out. And you throw something and that's it. It's done. Let's say uh, you've done that. The verbal de-escalation did not work. Mm-hmm. Um, and they throw a punch or they shove you. What should mm-hmm. be your next step? Because this is where things get tricky. You want to prevent as much as you can because by preventing violence, you stay out of the legal sphere, basically. As soon as there's a punch thrown by you or the other person, you're going to be put into civil court, possibly, or criminal in criminal court. So how do we manage that aspect of self-defense? Yeah, it's one of the things we're probably most famous for in my school. We're one of the very, very, very few that actually teach the legal ramifications of the techniques we teach you. And there's a very famous case in self-defense that most self-defense guys are aware of. Certainly the Filipino martial art community is aware of it. And there was a kid in uh, New York who had been taught Filipino martial arts. And, you know, that's all for those familiar with it. It's how to use a blade and how to use a stick. And they're really, really, really adept at, you know, flensing meat off people. And they know where all the major blood vessels are in a human body. And they'll stick you 15 times in three seconds with these preordained templates and so on. Unfortunately for this particular student, no one taught him, you know, legally, when can I get away with that? And this kid's in a bar in New York right after they'd introduced the no smoking law. And the bouncer came over and told his buddy he had to put his cigarette out. So they get into an argument. The bouncer's dragging this kid out and his mate who's trained in the Filipino martial arts shoves the knife in this guy's femoral artery and the bouncer dies. And that kid went to jail. One of his friends who helped him get cleaned up and changed his clothes, went, got convicted as an accessory to the fact. And I was always surprised that no one sued the instructor for failing this kid and not teaching them it in conjunction with this, here's 50 ways to kill someone with a knife, you know, know when you can do this. And working as a bodyguard, you know, when I'm looking after the band Warrant, for example, we toured, I think, 46 of the 50 states. And I can't possibly pick up the local laws concerning self-defense because they will diff their statewide, there are federal laws, there are statewide laws, there are city laws, there are county laws, and there's various ordinances depending on jurisdictions that you're in. I can't possibly as a bodyguard going from, you know, six towns in six nights, learn all that. So you apply a general rule of thumb, which is there's two ways to look at it. You know, the reasonable man defense 
which is what the prosecutor is going to ask the jury, right? What would a reasonable person do in the situation you found yourself in? And the other one is do the, use the least amount of physical force you can to resolve the situation. And if you follow those two guidelines, right, you're doing just about everything you can humanly do to reduce your risk of ending up in legal hot water. And we talk about that. We, you know, I tell my students, you've actually got two fights you have to win. You've got to win the physical one. You also have to win the legal one. And there are horror stories in this country. You know, I see them every week that someone will pull his gun out, shoot someone doing a home invasion or whatever. And next minute he's being sued. And it cost, there was one I just read the other day. It was a Marine and crutches went down to tell some drunks in front of his house to move along. He was trying to, to sleep. And the woman said, I'm going to go get a gun from the car. And she came back. She actually had a knife hidden down the back of a leg, but she told him she was getting a gun and he shot her. He won the criminal trial. It cost him 50000 in legal fees. And now he's being sued by her for 100000 She survived. So civilly, she's suing him for $100,000 for lost wages and medical bills. So, you know, it's hundred and fifty grand. That's a lot of damn money if you get this stuff wrong. So, yeah, the legal stuff is absolutely huge. Right. So, yeah, if someone shoves you, you're not going to go to lethal force. That'd be a reasonable Yeah, there's a, there's a thing we teach, and, you know, most law inf- a lot of law enforcement's gotten away from it. I actually think, think it's still good. It's called the use of force continuum, and it basically lists all the levels of force that the bad guy can use. So it starts with psychological intimidation, you know, the guy staring at you, you know, guys wearing gang colors and so on. Then it goes to verbal, you know, what are you looking at? Now it comes over to the grabbing of the shirt. Then it'll come to the punch. Then it will come to weapons. All right. And so we as civilians on the right side of the fence have corresponding levels of response. You get some guy trying to break in your back door at night and you go downstairs and turn your light on and shine a flashlight, right? That's your psychological intimidation. Now you say, what the hell are you doing? Go away. I'll call the cops. That's your verbal response, right? He comes in and tries to push his way through. And you, you, a lot of guys, oh, I'll just shoot him, you know, BS. What if it's he's the drunk neighbor trying to get into the wrong house, which happens a lot. So, you know, now you grab him and escort him off the property, which is your right, you know, because he's trespassing. And then he tries to swing or he picks up a golf club and comes back and tries to hit you. So we have these same levels of force that we can respond with. And the law is basically saying, you know, if he's pushing me and shoving me, I can't pull my gun out and shoot him. You know, there's too many degrees in there of difference. So I've got to try and match tit for tat, or I can go one level above what he's doing is what they pretty much give law enforcement the right to do. And so we just follow those same guidelines. Right. Well, I'm going to put on my, I went, I went to law school and put on my legal cap. Uh, what we just said is not legal advice. Uh, it's information. No, talk not. to no, 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 no. Talk, I, talk, I tell my students yeah. that all the time. In fact, right. about once a year, I bring a lawyer into the school. And I pay him for a couple of hours of his time. And all my students have questions prepared ahead of time. And uh, they get to ask him. And that is legal advice. Right. In the, in the interim, we just give them, you know, general guidelines. And we advise everybody, you know, if you're going to buy, if you make the decision to buy a gun, for God's sake, go and talk to an attorney and learn the rules, right, in your particular situation of when and where you can use that. Because one of the ones we did on the bodyguard course, which was the first time I got exposed to it, is they gave us a, a wax pistol, right? This is, you know, before simunitions existed. So you had a revolver and you had these bullets packed with wax. And they said, all right, you're looking after a client. You hear a noise in the middle of the night. You come downstairs. We're going to open up the door and here's the scenario. And they open up the door and here's a guy holding the TV set. 
And, you know, everyone pulls the gun out and goes, put the TV set down. And the guy goes, to hell with that, and walks out of the room. And everybody on the course shot him in the back of the head. And then they came over and said, congratulations, you're all going to jail. And everyone's like, what? No, but he's, he's in the house taking my TV set. And it's like, yes, you can't, you can't kill him for that. And there are so many people that I run into who, you know, think I'm going to buy a gun for defense. And if I find someone in my house, by golly, I'm going to shoot them. And legally, you're going to end up in hot water. You know, you, you, you go downstairs and that guy's walking out with your TV set. You can't do anything with that gun to him. And you try and shoot him and you're going to find out how that works. Right. Yeah. And it varies from state to state. Like some states, they have like the castle doctrine. So it's like anyone's in your home and mm-hmm. they shouldn't be there. You can shoot them possibly. And then there's yeah. some states where they're like, you have a duty to retreat. So you actually, even in your own home, mm-hmm. you got to go someplace and hide before the altercation occurs. Yeah. And it gets weird. There's ones where if he's kicking the door on the other side of the door, I am allowed to shoot him. But now he opens the door and comes inside. Now I have to start retreating. It gets really bizarre. It also gets bizarre in like what constitutes, what is a house? Is it like, does it start at your driveway? Does it start at the, mm-hmm. your door? So that yeah. that's why it's important, especially with the United States with our, with our federalism, where every state's got different laws, you want to check in on that. Yes, absolutely. You've got to know your local laws. There were, there were two people I read two years ago went to Washington, D.C., I believe, and they were from Tennessee. One guy was from Ohio, went to New York. And, you know, he's allowed to have guns at home and he traveled to New York and he took his weapons with him. He didn't think there was anything wrong with that because in his state, he's allowed to do it. And he left the gun on the bed in his hotel room in New York and went downstairs to get dinner. The maid came in, saw it, called the cops and he got charged, arrested, automatically 12 months in prison due to the Sullivan Act. And then the other one was a woman from Tennessee that went to see the Washington Monument and she walked into the guard downstairs and said, uh, it said no weapons. And she said, pulls her gun out of a pocket and says, where do I leave this while I go inside? And she got arrested. Oh, geez. So, yeah, no it way. absolutely behooves you, anyone listening to this, to, you know, wherever you're living. And you want to check because just because your state says something is, you know, you can have, a, there's federal laws about the length of a knife. And then there are state laws that say you can't have one. Then there are city ordinances that might overrule all of that. And again, the guideline we give people is always go with the strictest. So in other words, if the feds say you can have a shotgun and the state says you can't, right, then you've got to abide by what the state says because it doesn't matter if the feds say you can, if the state says you can't. All right, so pick the hardest one and abide by that. So we've talked about some just general principles of what things that you can do to apply while you're out and about to protect yourself, to avoid altercations. I'd like to end this uh, conversation with a few very context-specific, which you did this in the book, which I appreciate. Mm-hmm. So for example, a lot of people travel, they're staying in a hotel. Mm-hmm. If you're staying in New York, leave your pistol at home because that will get you in trouble. Mm-hmm. But what can people do to stay safe while they're staying in a hotel? Man, I could write a book on this one because this is such a big part of executive protection. You know, traveling with clients, we stay in hotels, right? So here's a couple of good ones. One, I always pack a portable burglar alarm, which in my case is a door wedge and a two foot by three foot piece of bubble wrap. And they roll up, you know, the, the wedge takes up no space at all in your luggage and costs you about, I think you can get a bag of those of three for about $2 at Lowe's. Your bubble wrap costs you next to nothing. Get that from a UPS store. I roll that up and keep that in my luggage. And then when I'm in my room at night, you know, the wedge gets kicked under the door and the bubble wrap gets laid in front of the door. And both of those super, super cheap. And it takes care of a lot of the hotels, you know, especially in third world countries, the maids aren't paid a lot. They'll make copies of the keys and give them to their boyfriends. And then your room can get 
rifled while you're not there. So that's a good one. Another one with my client, we're never allowed to book a room over the eighth floor because there's no fire truck in the world can get a ladder up over the eighth floor. And, you know, people laugh about that and go, oh, paranoid much. And I'm like, well, go check the, the fire in Vegas in which, you know, 98 people were burnt to a crisp. Look at the Twin Towers on 9-11. You know, those fire trucks can't get that high. My guidelines with my clients is always floor two or three, because if there is a hotel fire or you have to get away, you can drop from those floors with little risk of physical injury and anything much higher than that. And you've got problems. I tell my clients, you know, put the do not disturb sign on the door and leave the TV on. And I will tip the maid on day one and tell her, listen, I'm good. I'll come see you if I need anything. And that makes the room always look occupied. Another one is don't use the hotel safe. People stick stuff in that and it gets taken all the time. Most of those safes safes have a uh, manufacturer's code in them so that if hotel security, because you you know how you go in there and you can program your own pin code in, you know, you set the lock and you turn the thing and you got so many seconds to put your pin code. People forget that all the time. They call hotel security. They come up and put in four zeros and open the safe up. So most of them have that back door into them. So things like that, you know, take a, now it's great. You can take a picture of that little map on the back of the door that tells you how many exits to the fire escape and which direction, because people forget if there is a hotel fire and you open the door, the top two thirds of the corridor are going to be filled with smoke. And all the exit signs are over the doors, so you're not going to see them. So you've got to be able to drop on the floor and crawl and count the doors as you're going past and know which one the exit's in. And then there are things like, you know, be aware of scams. We do a lot of work with lone female executives that travel because obviously, again, you know, they're targeted. And, there's a, you know, I tell them if you're at a conference with your name badge on, the second you leave the conference floor, take your name badge off because it makes it very easy for someone to spot the name and go, oh, there's Sally. You know, they come up and knock on the door and go, Sally, it's us. And she hears her name and assumes it's someone she knows and opens the door to someone she doesn't know. Watch out for scams. I'm a little bit hesitant to say this one because there could be some bad guys listening that go, cool way to make money. But, you know, I'd stand next to you checking into the hotel and I hear the guy say, you know, yes, Mr. Smith, blah, 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 blah. Here's your keys. You're in room 417. And now I go out in the parking lot or I go over to the courtesy phone. I give you five minutes to get settled. Then I call your room and I say, it's Michael down on the front desk. Uh, your credit card, it didn't get processed correctly. Let me save you the trip down. Just give me the numbers again. And are you half asleep and jet lagged? You know, you just got undressed and you're like, oh my God, all right. Yeah, cool. Let me just give you the number. And I'm sitting down in the parking lot writing out your number. And then I go on a spending spree. So it's just being aware of things like that. If they call you from the front desk and say, can you come downstairs? You hang up and you call the front desk and say, did you guys ask for me to come down? Because that's how someone got kidnapped out of South America. You know, they wandered down to the lobby because they thought management had called them and the team was waiting in the lobby and snatched the guy. So just stuff like that. You know, this is the hard thing. The criminals are so damn clever and creative that every time they come up with one and we figure out a way to beat it, they're coming up with another one. There's so many jumps ahead. I just wish they'd turn that creativity to business and they'd be multi-billionaire damn entrepreneurs. Right. <laughs> right. So another context-specific situation you talked about was uh, in out when you're out in a car mm-hmm. driving. Yes. Um, what are some, some things that people can do, easy things? that people can do to ensure that they, they stay safe while, while they're out driving? Okay, there are bunches. The new empty sign on your car should be the halfway point. And I've actually had a female client took a picture and showed me. She put a little piece of white tape on her gas gauge with an E 
drawing on where the halfway point is. You want to all, all the security drivers I've ever worked with, we start the day they got a full tank of gas in the car. Because the last thing you want to do is be out somewhere. You spot that you're being followed or a blue light bandit tries to pull you over and you're trying to get away and you're in a car chase and you look down and your gas gauge is on empty. All right, that's horrific. I tell people, buy an SUV. I know that gets the ire of the uh, the earth biscuits, but if they argue with me from an ecologically friendly viewpoint that SUVs are bad for the environment, I agree. But if my counter argument is from a security viewpoint, there's no better vehicle. I am higher than every other vehicle I can see around. I can push other vehicles out the way. I can go over sidewalks and curbstones. You know, there's a reason all, if you look around the world, all the operators and government, secret service, CIA, paramilitary, everyone, wherever they're working, they're driving those things. They're not driving Priuses. All right. So from a security viewpoint, they're awesome. Another good trick is to know your 24 hour safe havens. We, mostly do the same five trips every week in the car. So everyone has the same route. They go to work every morning. Then they go pick the kids up and drop the kids off at school. They take them to soccer on Wednesday. They go get groceries on Friday, and then they drive to mom's house on Sunday or they go to church. But it's typically the same five trips over and over. Your job is to know on that route where every single building is or institution is that's open 24 hours that has security guards. So this will be things like fire stations, police stations, hospitals. You know, I live near a nuclear power plant. Anything along those lines, there are 24-hour supermarkets. So that if if you're a lone female at night being followed, you don't go home, which is your initial reaction. You know, I'm safe at home if I can get home, and now the bad guy's following me. You go and pick one of those 24-hour safe havens and drive right through the front door if you have to. Things like that. Do not do road rage. It ain't worth it. If someone's doing that, ignore them, drive away, slow down, leave, get on another ramp, whatever. It isn't worth getting involved in this stuff, you know. And, and again, every week we see, you know, it was one, it was about two weeks ago, I saw the girl was shot coming on the on-ramp, arguing with the guy. And, you know, they're both moving, inching forward, trying to fight for who's going to get in front. And the guy shoots and kills her. So he's in jail for life. She's dead over what? You know, public highway. It just doesn't make sense. A good rule of thumb is pretend every other single car on the road is being driven by your grandmother. Another one I tell them is when you pull up behind cars in front of you, make sure you can see the bottom of their tires where they make contact with the road. And that doesn't matter what vehicle you're in. I can go from a Porsche to an SUV. If I maintain that rule, it means if something happens, so a guy comes up with a gun at the intersection and starts shooting into cars or there's an attempted carjacking or whatever, I can hook my wheel left or right and drive without fear of hitting the car in front of me, which is just going to complicate things. And, you know, just a ton of stuff like that. I I think you had mentioned sanitizing the vehicle or keeping the vehicle clean. One of the exercises I do on the live course is we take them out into the parking lot and I just start going through people's cars, building up a profile on them. And, you know, you see those little family stickers on the back. So I'm like, okay, you got two kids. I've seen those things with the kids' names written underneath the sticker. You know, all I have to do is follow that mum home, see where they live, see where the school bus drops the kid off. Now I pull up next to the kid and go, Susan, your mum told me to get you. Your dad's in the hospital. We've got to go right now. Now, because I know her name, all right, she assumes, and let's say in the back of the car, I've seen a saddle or some, you know, some horse riding gear or lacrosse equipment. I go, you know, I'm from the lacrosse club. Your mum sent me down to get your dad's in the hospital and she climbs into the car and I've got all of that just looking at your vehicle. 
There was a guy, someone put a picture on social media the other day of a guy who put the, you know, the anti-gun grabbing sticker across the back of come and get it. And someone broke his back window and got it. You know, this is the bad guys know if you have an NRA sticker on the back of your car, chances are there's a gun inside your vehicle. You know, I know cops who've been targeted because they've got a police sticker on the back. And it's just simple stuff. I've got so many of the clients, when they pull up, I walk out to the car and their mail's on the front seat with their home address on it. And you can just learn so much just by walking around that vehicle and looking at that stuff. So we tell people, sanitize all that crap. Make it so if someone looks at your car, there is nothing they can learn about you. Right. Keep it like a rental car, basically. Mm -hmm. Pretty much. Yep. Yeah. We talked about a lot, but there's so much more we could talk about. Where can people go to learn more about the book and the rest of your work? Uh, They can find the book on Amazon under howtobeyourownbodyguard.com. And then we have a website for the book, which is, you know, constantly being updated and where you know when we announce the audiobook that will be on there the app is being recalibrated that's going to be on there we're going to have another live course coming up soon that's going to be on there but that's all on h2bg.com which is the how to be your own bodyguard so h for hotel the number two b bravo g golf.com fantastic well nick hughes thanks so much for your time it's been a pleasure uh, likewise mate enjoyed it My guest today was Nick Hughes. He's the author of the book, How to Be Your Own Bodyguard. It's available on amazon.com. You can find out more information about his work at his website, h2bg.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash bodyguard, where you find links to resources, where you delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website, artofmanliness.com, where you can find our podcast archives. There's over 500 episodes there, as well as thousands of articles written over the year on topics like self-defense, personal finance, how to be a better husband, better father, style. Also, if you'd like to hear ad-free new episodes of the Art of Manliness Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. For a free month of Stitcher Premium, sign up at stitcherpremium.com and use promo code MANLINESS. After you sign up, you can download the Stitcher app for iOS and Android and start enjoying ad-free art manliness episodes again stitcherpremium.com promo code manliness and if you haven't done so already i'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on itunes or stitcher it helps out a lot and if you've done that already thank you please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it as always thank you for the continued support and until next time this is brett mckay reminding you not only listen to the a1 podcast but put what you've heard into action mm-hmm.